I invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to the book of Job, chapter 33. If you're visiting the bridge for the first time today, uh, or if you haven't been with us in a while, we're currently making our way through the book of Job. And while I recognize it's Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, and some of you have shown up for a resurrection teaching, God will meet you where you are. And He has again met us where we are, and I believe we'll provide that teaching right here in the book of Job for today. Job chapter 33, verse 14. Indeed, God speaks once, or twice, yet no one notices it. In a dream, a vision of the night, when sound sleep falls on men while they slumber in their beds, then He opens the ears of men and seals their instruction, that He may turn aside from His conduct and keep man from pride. He keeps back His soul from the pit and His life from passing over into Sheol. Man is also chastened with pain on his bed and with unceasing complaint and complaint in his bones so that his life loathes bread and his soul favorite food. His flesh wastes away from sight and his bones which were not seen stick out. And then his soul draws near to the pit and his life to those who bring death. If there is an angel as mediator for him, one out of a thousand, to remind a man what is right for him, then let him be gracious to him and say, Deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresher than in youth. Let him return to the vigor, to the days of his youthful vigor. And then he will pray to God and he will accept him, that he may see his face with joy, and he may restore his righteousness to man. He will sing to men and say, I have sinned and perverted what is right and is not proper for me. He has redeemed my soul from going down to the pit and my life shall see the light. Behold, God does all these oftentimes with men to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be enlightened with the light of life. Father, as we consider the words of Elihu here this morning in the book of Job, Lord, I pray You would open our eyes to consider a great truth that You have been expressing to humanity from day one. And I pray we would hear these words, receive them, Father, as truth. God, it seems to me that that the days are getting more confusing, more tumultuous, more tragic in many ways. Lord, there are, there are days where I don't know how to take all in what's happening around me, how to, to figure it all out. And, and I, like Peter, cry out, Lord, to whom else can I go? So we come to You this morning, Father, seeking to make sense out of, out of life and to draw us into the truth. And I pray, Father, if there's anyone this morning, either first or second service, who is here, who has not declared Jesus as Lord and Savior, who who has not come to understand the wonder of what it is you have done across history. And I pray that understanding would would be revealed today. I pray like a flower opening up that, uh, that our hearts, our minds would be open. And Holy Spirit, would you speak your word today in Jesus' name. Amen. There's something very simple that I think the Lord would have us all understand today. 
very clear statement, and that is simply this, the afterlife is not an afterthought. The afterlife is not an afterthought. In fact, the Lord made it abundantly clear that the salvation and resurrection of man was His intention from day one. From the very beginning. Part of plan A, there is no plan B. The afterlife is not an afterthought with God. It's not as if He tried one thing that failed and didn't work, so He tried another and ultimately said, well, I'll just resurrect them. I'll just figure it out somehow. Jesus said in John 14, 19, Because I live, you will live also. And Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, If we died with Him, we will also live with Him. You see, resurrection is not a Christian-only belief. It's not limited to the New Testament Scriptures. It is so deeply rooted in the Hebrew Scriptures and in Jewish understanding, going back to the earliest of times, that the most expensive grave sites in all Israel are on the Mount of Olives. Well, why is that? Million dollar grave sites there across the Mount of Olives. Because Zechariah says when Messiah comes, he will set foot on the Mount of Olives. And to the Jewish person who is yet to believe that Jesus is Messiah, well, they want to be right there when Messiah comes to be resurrected. Resurrection has always been taught. It goes back again to the earliest days. Easter 2004 was our first Easter Sunday service as, a, as an official fellowship, meeting here in the barn. And we gathered together and we had begun a trek through the Bible beginning in Genesis in fall of 2003. Now I want to let you in on a little secret about me as a pastor teacher. I don't look forward uh, to Easter Sunday. Now it's not because I don't love resurrection, the story of Jesus, but I don't like topical sermons. I don't like having to draw out of where we're studying and, and figure out, okay, what am I going to say and how is it going to impact and what, what needs to be heard today. I just don't like to think that way. I prefer just to study through the Word and let God tell us Himself. He's much better at that than I am. But on that particular Easter, as we were coming up to it and we have been in Genesis and it was wonderful for me as a pastor because I knew every week, you know, we'd just go on to the next chapter and continue re- reading through and studying through what God had for us. In the week prior to that, I sat down and opened up my Bible. I said, okay, Lord, I'd really like to just stay in Genesis. Could we do that? And I read Genesis 22, which was right where we were. Genesis 22, which was a picture of the whole Easter story. Marvelous picture. And we looked at it that first Easter. Genesis 22, where Abraham took Isaac up on Mount Moriah. Where today, the Temple Mount stands in Jerusalem. Abraham goes up Mount Moriah, commanded by God to do that, takes Isaac up with him to sacrifice him in one of the oddest requests in all history. God saying to Abraham, I want you to take your son, whom you love, your only son Isaac, and take him up on the mount and sacrifice him. What does Abraham do? No, Lord, I won't do such a thing. No, in faith, he says, all right. He takes his son up the mountain. By the way, Isaac was not a kid. Isaac could very likely have been in his late 20s, early 30s at this time. So there's faith both in Abraham and Isaac as they're walking up the hill. And, and Isaac says, uh, Father, we've got wood for the offering. <laughs> what are we going to offer? And Abraham said those wonderful words, the Lord will provide. God will provide it. They go up. Abraham raises the knife after binding his son, and Isaac doesn't fight back. Isaac would have known at that point, as he's being strapped down to the wood, it's me being laid on the wood. I'm the, I'm the offering. I'm the sacrifice. 
Abraham raises the knife and God says, no, stop. Stop. Why would God do such a thing? Oh, to test the faith of Abraham, sure. But also to paint the dramatic picture of a father who loved a son. By the way, Genesis 22, verse 2 is the first time in the Bible the word love is used. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. Isaac. It was a picture of a father who loved a son. A father who loved his son so much and yet loved his people so much that he would sacrifice his only son. A picture of Jesus on the cross. All the way back in Genesis 22. Why was Abraham willing to raise the knife above the body of his son Isaac? I'll tell you why. Because Abraham believed in resurrection. Abraham believed he had somehow sorted out in his mind that even if he were to take the life of his only son whom he loved, God would resurrect Isaac. God would make it right. How do you know that, Pastor? Hebrews 11, verse 17 tells us, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. Resurrection. If you look closely in Genesis 22, another amazing picture of resurrection begins to emerge there. And it's fantastic. And you might miss it because it's just one verse. It tells us in verse 19 of Genesis 22, Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Abraham returned. Where's Isaac? Where'd Isaac go? Why is all of a sudden only Abraham mentioned coming down the mountain and Isaac's not there? Did he just take off? Okay, I'm out of here, Dad. This was too weird. (laughs) We don't know what happened to him. But what's interesting is you don't see Isaac again until Genesis 24-62 when he shows up to come for his bride, Rebecca. So what happened? Well, after the crucifixion, Jesus said, the world will not see me. But the world will see him when he and his bride return. I tell you all this, gang, this wonderful picture of a son sacrificed, resurrected, disappearing for a time, returning for his bride, just as Jesus will return. Gang, the afterlife is not an afterthought. The Lord knew what he was doing at the very beginning, and so he began to implant pictures into the historical narrative, into the story of man. Pictures that would help us to see. He didn't just say he was going to do it, he showed us what it would look like. To His glory, He's been planning ever since the beginning. Exodus chapter 12. Exodus 12, you may know the story there of the Passover lamb. Well, we just celebrated it on, on Wednesday night in that wonderful Passover Seder over at Anacortes Christian Church. If you didn't get to go, it was, oh, it was a marvelous time. It was a wonderful time to, to recognize Jesus in the Passover and all the elements of the Passover and how they point to Jesus Christ. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5-7, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. He hit the nail on the head. The whole point of the Passover lamb wasn't because God likes to kill lambs. The whole point was because the lamb was a picture of Jesus who would become our sacrifice. You know, there's that wonderful and curious addition to the Passover meal that Jews pay attention to and they still carry out today. And, and Jewish rabbis don't really know why. And we talked about it Wednesday. It's, it's taking that matzah bread and at the beginning of, of the Seder, you've got that, that little pillow that has three pouches to it. And you put it in three pieces of matzah, one into each pouch. 
And then in the meal, you reach in and you take out the middle piece of matzah. Now, to the Christian mind, there's some understanding there. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The middle one being a picture of the Son breaking the matzah, putting it in another pouch, and then hiding it for a time. Until later, it is found, discovered, resurrected, and placed back in the original pouch. And there's a word that is used to describe that. It's the only Greek word in the Hebrew Passover service. Afikomen. The Afikomen which literally means the coming one. Even in Passover, there's the picture of resurrection, of the coming one, of Jesus Christ. No one really knows where it came from. Our our guide on Wednesday night, Rich Robinson from Jews for Jesus, said he thinks, and he can't prove it, but this was something that the first century Christians, who were Jewish, very much so, when they began to celebrate Passover, recognizing Christ in the Passover, they added that little tradition and it's carried on to this day. Something to consider. The Bible, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures is full of pictures of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Leviticus chapter 14. We looked at this a year ago. A strange law, an obscure law for the Levites for the cleansing of a leper who's been healed. Not for healing a leper, but for cleansing a leper who's already become healed. Well, that's impossible, right? Well, when Jesus came along, (laughs) a leper was healed and was told to go and present himself before the priest for this particular law. It'd be the only time that law was was used or employed. The Leviticus 14 law for cleansing a leper, the Lord instructed in this law that two birds be used in the ceremony. One was sacrifice, providing the blood of sacrifice. The other one was then oddly dipped in the sacrificial blood of the original bird and then set free to fly over the open field with blood on its wings. Incredible picture there, again, of a live bird flying free, blood on its wings, Leviticus 14.7 tells us. And there's another picture there of the ascension, of the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. Because Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12 tells us He entered heaven through His own blood and provides us the freedom of resurrection that He purchased on the cross. Now, some might say, okay, well, pastor, those are just pictures and you can make pictures out of anything. I need something more concrete. I need someone to tell me in the Hebrew Scriptures that it says someone's going to be resurrected. Show me that. Okay. How about King David's assertion not only of His own resurrection, but of His Lord's resurrection. Psalm 16, verse 10. You will not abandon My soul to Sheol, nor will you allow Your Holy One to undergo decay. How could David know what he's talking about? Probably didn't. As most of the prophets didn't. They searched to understand what they were saying. All they knew was that God was implying something to their hearts, and so they spoke, not always understanding. And David says, I know I'm not going to be abandoned in death. I know you're not going to let your Holy One be abandoned in death as well. Isaiah. Oh, Isaiah comes along and prophesies of the suffering servant, that famous passage in Isaiah 53. And listen to these words of the suffering servant resurrected, Isaiah 53, verse 10. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Okay, that's Jesus. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. When? After he's crushed. After he's offered. 
After the sacrifice, He will prolong His days. Well, how's that possible if He's dead? Resurrection. Isaiah goes on and says, As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors. There's a great reward for Jesus who would sacrifice himself. And then be resurrected to receive that, that reward. Here's another line from the sons of Korah, Psalm 49:15. They wrote, "God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for He will receive me." Now I, I tell you all that just to say that in the Hebrew mindset, among the Jewish people, you don't even have to get into the New Testament to believe in, to accept, to receive the concept of resurrection. The truth is the afterlife is not an afterthought. But this morning, I want to go back even further than Isaiah. Or David. Or the law. Back to the days of Abraham. Back to a contemporary of Abraham. That man, you know his name, Job. And we've been looking at Job's life and his tragedy and how he walked through it. And we've been looking, especially on Sundays, at some huge pictures. Some huge statements that the Lord makes in the book of Job touching us. Well, this morning is one of those. Job cried out in Job 19 verse 25 I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last He will take His stand on the earth even after my skin is destroyed yet from my flesh I shall see God resurrection Job says I know it how do you know this Job? where do you get such an idea? Well, God has been relaying the reality of resurrection since the very beginning. It's not an afterthought. But I wonder sometimes, is it an afterthought for you or for me? I don't really want to think about what happens after I die. As a matter of fact, I don't really want to think about my death at all. Let's just put that thought aside. Let's get ourselves busy and wrapped up and rushing in life so we don't have to think about what is inevitable, what is coming, what we all must face. Death. Let's just not even go there. And so for many people, afterlife is an afterthought. Resurrection, Jesus, church, Bible, all that stuff, you know, it's just, I'll think about that later. And I encourage you that just as it was not an afterthought for the Father, it needs to not be an afterthought for us. Because this life is here and gone so quickly. So quickly. There are families in our area because of the refinery explosion who understand that this morning full well. There are people asking the question, why? He was so young. She was so young. Why did it happen? It was so fast. It was so instantaneous. And it jars us. Those moments jar us into the reality of life that, man, we are fragile. We're not lasting forever. Not in this place. There's got to be more, right? Well, Job said, yes, there is more. I know there's more. Why is it that God, speaking through all history about the resurrection, pointing the picture to Jesus again and again and again, why is it after all that that it's still an afterthought for people. I think the reason is because we have hearing trouble. 
we're not listening. Rich Robinson said something else on Wednesday night that I think surprised some people. He said the reason why a lot of Jewish people don't understand much about even their own faith is because they don't know the Bible. Most secular Jews haven't even read it. They have a Torah. They they have a Tanakh, you know, the Old Testament Scriptures. They've got it, but they they don't really pay attention to it. Far too many Christians, same thing. We don't ever open the Word, so how do we really know what's going on? And so we make assumptions. My son Hayden was telling me on Facebook the other day, he was talking with a friend of his who said he was an atheist. And Hayden got into a conversation. I love that. That's something Hayden enjoys doing. If he finds out you're an atheist, he's going to talk to you. <laughs> and so he's typing back and forth, and he finds out, well, I'm not really an atheist. I'm sure there's a God of some kind of power out there, but I don't really believe in Jesus and the Bible and all the rest of that stuff. And Hayden says, well, why not? You want to know what the kid's answer was? Well, I don't really want to. Okay, that's a good thing to base your belief system on. I don't want to. I want to believe this. I don't want to believe that. I don't like the fact that you tell me the chairs are blue. I refuse to believe that. For me, they're red. It doesn't matter what you tell me, and it doesn't matter what the truth is. Gang, the truth is here. The truth is wide open. The question is, are we listening? And we've asked this question so many times. And I believe the Father would say to our hearts this morning, are you listening? Look at what Elihu says. And by the way, we're going to talk more about who this enigmatic character Elihu is. He's mysterious. He shows up all of a sudden in chapter 31 of the book of Job, seemingly out of nowhere. Who is this guy? We'll find out on Wednesday night. We'll get into a little bit more of his character and what he brings to the table. But this young man enters a fiery debate. A debate that's been rolling on now for several weeks between Job and his friends and probably went on for several weeks at their time as well. And Elihu says in verse 14, Indeed, God speaks once or twice, yet no one notices it. (laughs) That's the truth. That's the issue. The Lord speaks, and we're too busy to hear. The Lord draws our attention, paints an amazing picture, as with Abraham and Isaac, the Levitical law, the Passover things we've talked about. No one's paying attention. Elihu says, this is the problem. This is what's going on, Job, with you and your friends. Is God's trying to say something to you, and you're not paying attention. Well, okay, Elihu, if the Lord speaks, tell me how He speaks. Read on, verse 15. He gives two ways. He says, first, in a dream. Or a vision of the night when sound sleep falls on men while they slumber in their beds. Then He opens the ears of men and seals their instruction that He may turn man aside from his conduct and keep him from pride. The first way Elihu tells us that God speaks is through dreams and visions. Through dreams and visions. Now, if Eliphaz was a religionist and Bildad was a traditionalist, as we've seen, and Zophar was a legalist, well, Elihu's a Pentecostal. He speaks to us in dreams and visions. And Elihu's saying this to Job. He's saying, Job, you know this full well. Well, how does Elihu know Job knows? Well, because Job is probably very well heard from God at points in his life. Job says some things he couldn't have known unless God had spoken to him otherwise. And so he says, you know this, Job. He, he speaks. And of course... What did Peter say in Acts 2.17? It shall be in the last days, he says, quoting the prophet Joel. God says, I'll pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. 
So, visions and dreams should not be surprising to us. It should not be a surprising way God speaks to us. Now, we'll get into that more on Wednesday night as well. But Elihu's saying, Job, you know this. God speaks, number one, in dreams and in visions. And in verse 18 he says, He keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from passing over into Sheol. You know, rather than asking the question, why does God allow people to die? We probably should be asking the question, why does God keep us alive at all? Why is it that He allowed her 29 years? Why does He give me 45 years? Why is it He allows us any amount of life? One breath is a gift that we don't deserve. And Elihu says what God's really about is trying to keep you from that place. God is, if anything, restraining death, holding back our lives that we might learn about real, resurrected, eternal life. You see, the reality is it's not God's desire, it's never been God's desire to bring you down, but it's always His desire to lift you up. And so He restrains death. And for those who have grown up in a cynical or critical or condemning works-oriented religious environment, you need to understand something. That God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. That whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Peter says in 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow about His promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. It's not God's desire to crush and kill and cause life to cease. No, Elihu says he, he keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from passing into Sheol. But... Elihu says there's another way God speaks to us. And in fact, in the book of Job, he opens up a whole new window of understanding for Job. A whole huge new window. In fact, it's interesting, at the very end of of chapter 33, Elihu says in verse verse 32, he says, If you have anything to say, answer me. Speak. I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me. Keep silent, and I will teach you wisdom. And you'll notice Job keeps silent. After Elihu speaks these words, suddenly Job is going, huh, I hadn't thought about that before. What is it Job hadn't thought about? The second way God speaks to man, verse 19, in pain. Watch this. Man is also chastened with pain on his bed and with unceasing complaint in his bones so that his life loathes bread and his sole favorite food. His flesh wastes away from sight. His bones which were not seen stick out. And then his soul draws near to the pit and his life to those who bring death. C.S. Lewis in the book The Problem of Pain said this. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience. He shouts to us in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone, Lewis said, to rouse a deaf world. We hate pain. None of us want pain. No one invites it. Oh, please hurt me, Lord. No one's praying that prayer. And yet God allows, sometimes causes, brings pain into our lives because He's trying to get us to see something. He's trying to direct us. He's holding back our life from the pit long enough that we might understand, man, our pain is a a blip on the screen of eternity. Our life like that. There's a bigger picture here the Lord is saying to us. 
And so this new thought is introduced into the dialogue that sometimes God will resort to uncomfortable, even painful ways of getting our attention. And guess what? With Job, his pain is not punishment. Like Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar keep saying, oh, you're being punished. No, it's not punishment. It's prevention. Not punitive, preventative. As the Lord is trying to bring Job to a new place of understanding. And my friends, He may take us all the way to the edge of the pit if He has to, if that's what it takes to save us for the big picture of eternity with Him. Now Elihu goes on. And watch this. He's about to give a fantastic resurrection prophecy. And if you're a note-taker, quickly you can jot three things down. The first one is ransom. Notice this, verse 23. He says, if... And by the way, the Hebrew word if is also since. can be translated since... There is an angel as mediator for him, an angel as mediator for him, one out of a thousand, to remind a man what is right for him, then let him be gracious to him. This is no ordinary angel that suddenly Elihu is talking about. This angel is a rarity. Elihu Elihu uses a Hebrew phrase, one out of a thousand. He's saying, if there is an angel, or since there is an angel that is so rare... And remember, you Bible students, the word angel here in Hebrew is not like in the Greek angelos, which means specifically an angel, you know, with the wings and the whole nine yards. Angel in the Hebrew Scriptures is messenger. It's simply the word messenger, and Elihu calls this messenger Malach Melis. Malach Melis, the messenger mediator. An angel who has the ability to mediate between God and man. A messenger who comes between. Wait a minute. That's what Job was crying out for. That's what he's been asking for. Job 9.33 says, There's no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon us both. No mediator. I need a mediator between myself and God. A go-between. Who could that possibly be? Well, you know what the Bible says about that. There is one mediator between God and man. The man Jesus Christ. This... Malach Malis, this messenger mediator, the one that Elihu is talking about, whether he realizes it or not, is Jesus Christ. A mediator, an angel. But skeptical? Watch this, there's more. He's dispensing grace. If this angel mediator comes out for him, one out of a thousand, to remind him what is right for him, let him be gracious to him. So this angel, this mediator, this messenger gives grace. And say, deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. A ransom. Elihu says, deliverance from the pit requires a ransom. But the Hebrew word for ransom there, get this, is kippur. You've probably heard that word used in this phrase, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. The word ransom is atonement. A messenger who comes along distributing, giving grace by virtue of atonement. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son, the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. There's only one thing that can possibly deliver you, deliver me from death, and that is the atonement, the sacrifice. 
what John calls a propitiation, which even goes further than atonement in terms of a complete washing. Verse 25. Let his flesh become fresher than in youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Second thing to note. Not only ransom, but now he's talking about rebirth. Rebirth. A return to the days when, ladies, you didn't need all the creams and jars to keep it young. (laughs) And you know why gentlemen don't use all those creams and jars? Because we don't care. (laughs) And it's obvious in how we look. But there's a phenomenal realization of resurrection here, of what it really means to walk in a whole, perfect, reborn, resurrected body. I was thinking upon our return from Israel a week or so ago that my exhaustion seems to be worse every time. And the older I get, the more tired I get, and the longer it takes for me to get my legs back under me when I get back from Israel. Then I ran into Pat Greenlaw on Wednesday night. Is Pat, is he here this morning right now? He'll be here later because he's still sleeping. <laughs> Pat tells me, I said, how are you doing? Are you recovering from the trip? You know, because I'm kind of sleepy-eyed and it's, it's in the evening. And normally about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, man, I am just exhausted. So I said, so how are you doing, Pat? Pat's young, strapping young man. He goes, oh man, I'm, I'm hitting the couch around 4 o'clock in the afternoon, sleeping all night. <laughs> Wimp. <laughs> the Bible says, Isaiah 40, 28, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths, Pat, grow weary and tired, <laughs> and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not get tired. They'll walk and not become weary. We get older and we become more weary. And we become tired. And yet, Elihu is talking about this, this messenger mediator who comes along dispensing grace, offering atonement, who now allows man to return to the, to the days of youthful vigor, of fresh skin, of unused bodies, capable of, of wonderful strength. Even though in our youth we may become weary, our resurrected, reborn flesh, gang, it's going to be fresher than our youth. Put away the cream, ladies. Jesus is coming. (laughs) Would you keep your finger there in Job and turn to 1 Corinthians 15? It's amazing I don't get eggs sitting up here. Especially on Easter. 1 Corinthians 15, just listen to Paul writing about this. The hope, the joy, the promise that's here. He says in 1 Corinthians 15.42, So is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. I got one of those. In fact, anybody here not feeling from time to time that you are in a perishable body? (laughs) It's sown a perishable body. It's raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown in a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual. He says, then down in verse 50, skip down there, he says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, 
But we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. Listen to me, the greatest message of an Easter morning or an Easter Sunday is not simply the fantastic truth of Jesus' resurrection. It's your resurrection. That's why we turn out. This really hit me huge this last week. So many will show up on an Easter Sunday because they want to hear the curious story of the resurrection of Jesus 2,000 years ago, not giving a thought to the fact that the truth of that story is your resurrection. It's my resurrection. The fact that He did resurrect from the dead, it's not a surprise. He's God. Of course He could do that. But He did something amazing. He busted wide open the gates of hell and death. He took away that punishment for anyone who puts their faith in Him. You now stand with the truth and promise of resurrection before you, no matter what happens to your earthly body now. Man, happy resurrection day! That's what it's about. But what is the real purpose of our resurrection, yours and mine? Is it so God can just show off His power? Well, partially, yeah. It's going to glorify God. But is it so we can flit and float around in eternity from cloud to cloud? Is that what we're resurrected to? Is that what the spiritual body thing Paul was talking about is? What's the point? Listen, third and final point. The whole issue is about restoration. Jesus brings the ransom that we might have rebirth and have restoration. A word we use a lot here. Because the Bible uses it a lot. Because the Lord uses it a lot. Because it's His desire. How does that work? Watch this. The next three verses. Then He will pray to God. That is the person who's been resurrected. Returned to youthful vigor. He will pray to God. He will accept Him. That He may see His face with joy. And He may restore His righteousness to man. By His righteous intercession. Notice that. He will pray to God. Who will pray to God? The person resurrected? Or might we be talking about Jesus seeking the Lord on your behalf that you might receive the righteousness of God in Jesus. You know the verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Why does God want us to be righteous? Because He wants a restored relationship. He wants us to get face to face again. He wants to draw us to Himself. That we can relate. That we can talk. That we can walk. That we can be together just like you and I are. In fact, I think in a more fantastic way. Righteous intercession of Jesus there in verse 26, verse 27. He will sing to men and say, now speaking of the resurrected, I have sinned and perverted what is right and is not proper for me. What's that? That's my honest confession. Because the redemption of Jesus Christ helps me realize I needed to be redeemed. And I confess, it is not by my power. It is not by my personal righteousness or my holiness or my keeping all the right laws. It's not what saves me. It's because of His ransom that He paid on the cross. His righteousness imputed to me because of what He did. And I receive that in faith. And John said in 1 John 1.9, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
My honest confession, His righteous intercession, and verse 28, His rescuing redemption. All a part of the restoration story. His rescuing redemption. He has redeemed my soul from going to the pit, and my life shall see the light. Just get that picture in your minds of God reaching out, grabbing hold of us, and pulling us out of the darkness of the pit, and into the bright light of His presence, of His glory. You see, even back here, 4,000 years ago, in the days of Job, we see that God's primary concern is not religion. It's restoration. It's bringing us back. The Lord doesn't want to resurrect a system of laws and ordinances. Those things kill. Because we can't keep them. And as we've seen, the problem of Job's three friends, they have been talking to Job over the weeks. They couldn't see God because their religion got in the way. All their platitudes, all their belief system made it difficult for them to see what God was really doing. Elihu comes along, and he begins to see some of what God's doing here. Romans chapter 8, verse 3 tells us what the law could not do. You have, again, if you've been raised in a strict religious environment, please hear this verse. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. But why did He do it? Do you think God did that so that you and I could go to church and become more religious? I mean, really? Is that what it's about? No, God resurrects to a restored relationship, a joyful face-to-face reunion. And that's always been His intention. Since Adam and Eve blew it in the garden and was kicked out, God has been looking for a way to woo us back to the garden to walk with Him in the cool of the day. Our resurrection is an invitation to come back to the presence of the Father. It's wonderful. Verse 29, Behold, God does all these things oftentimes with men. Literally twice, three times with men. Again, it's a Hebrew phrase indicating on on and on God's doing this to bring back His soul from the pit. Watch this. That He may be enlightened with the light of life. Who's the light of life? Jesus is. John 8, 12, He said, I am the light of the world. He who follows Me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Life. Resurrection. The ruins of an ancient Herodian palace, complete with a swimming pool, a hippodrome, and a 4,000 seat Roman theater stands today. It stands on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea near the Israeli city of Netanya, and it was once called Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea by the Sea. And we know that in that very crowded theater, 2,000 years ago, a man named Paul stood chained up. He had been brought before the ruling powers, at least in the area of that day, the governor Festus, who I like to call Uncle Festus. And Herod's great-grandson, Herod the baby killer, his great-grandson Agrippa. Paul is called out before them. In Acts chapter 26, verse 22, listen to what he says. Paul, it's a fantastic 
fantastic witness of Jesus. And he holds up hands in chains. They're in that amphitheater. Some of you just saw that amphitheater. We were just there. And there before this pompous crowd of dignitaries, he he lifts up his hands and he begins to speak. He, He says down in verse 22, Having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. What are you talking about, Paul? Same thing we've been talking about this morning. What they said long ago, what has been said over and over and over and over and over, I declare again to you today, Paul says, that Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of His resurrection from the dead, He would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And while Paul was saying this in defense, Uncle Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. Ever heard that before? (laughs) You Christians. So weird. And Paul said, listen to this, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Uncle Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. I can imagine Paul speaking in that moment and letting that hang for a minute. I am not out of my mind. I am telling you the most sober truth you'll ever hear in your life. And then he waits. Let the words sink in. And then he turns his attention to Agrippa. And he says, For the king knows about these matters. And I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice. This has not been done in a corner. This is not a surprise. You watched all this happen, Agrippa, Paul is saying. And he says in verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Tragically, Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. (laughs) And Paul said, I would wish to God that whether in a short time or a long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. (laughs) God has been laying this out for millennia through the prophets of old, and finally, as the Hebrew writer tells us, through Jesus, His Son, who Himself resurrected on the third day, breaking the power of sin and death, and finally opening the way to eternal life for you, and for me, and for all who put their faith in Him. And that's the deal. And it's been proclaimed since the beginning. And though we live in days that are becoming more confusing, and more trying, and more tumultuous, the message is the same. The afterlife is not an afterthought with God. It is His primary hope for you and for me. pastor asked me last, last week, so are you doing something special for, for Easter Sunday? At church, are you doing something special for Easter Sunday? And I pondered that question. Because, to be honest, I've grown really tired of the pomp and circumstance of the church trying to sell ourselves to the world as if we have to sell anything. Hey, the truth is the truth. Here it is. You know? Here it is. You don't need me to sell it. You don't need the worship band or the choir. You don't need video. You don't need high tech. We don't need fog machines and light shows. 
And we laugh about that. Man, it is in the church all over the place. It is the pomp of worship and it's so much work. And so he asked, are you doing something special for Easter Sunday? And I didn't mean to be, you know... uh... (laughs) But this pastor friend of mine, I said to him, you know what, dude, every day is Easter Sunday. Every day for me is Resurrection Sunday. This day is no different. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you know that every day is your Resurrection Day. You open your eyes and praise God. You don't have to fear this life. Praise God. You know where you're going. Praise God. You know you will see Him again. Face to face in a right, restored, righteous relationship that He bought for you. And that's what it's about. And if you don't know Jesus, if you don't have a relationship with Him this morning... Man, I'm just here to tell you, it's the only way to live. The afterlife is not an afterthought with God. May it not be an afterthought with you or with me today. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank You so much for loving us as You do. Thank You for sending Jesus. And thank You, Lord, for before You sent Jesus, sending all these indicators of what You were about to do. And I ask again, Lord, this morning, that whether it's here at the bridge, or at any church down the street, across the bridge, wherever, throughout this region, I pray, Father, that people will hear the truth of the resurrection message. That lives will be saved by Jesus. Father, we love You and we praise You. Lift up Your body. As we lift up Your Son, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.